If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. If you'll turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, I'll be reading from the first chapter, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. So every once in a while, someone will ask me to preach a particular sermon again because it was important to that person. And not long ago, John Morozik asked me if I would preach original blessing again. And this morning, I'm honoring that request. And it begins, oddly enough, with something called syllogistic logic, which we teach in critical thinking and you are really familiar with. It sounds like this. Major premise, all men are mortal. Minor premise, Socrates is a man. Therefore, conclusion, Socrates is mortal. Now, sometimes people will just drop the first or major premise, all men are mortal, because everyone knows that's true. We assume it. So often we do not express our first premises because we assume them, and in Greek logic, an assumed premise is called an enthymeme, great word. A more modern example would be this, Rogaine grows hair, therefore bald men love Rogaine. 
You see, no one thinks to state the major premise. It's assumed that bald men would prefer to have hair. That's an enthymeme. And there are assumed premises all over American politics, like wealth will trickle down, more guns will make us safer, and they run amok in Christianity too, like Jesus came to save our souls and died to pay the price for our sins. And then, of course, there's original sin, which may be the granddaddy of all enthymemes, the most important assumed premise in the church. What I've been asking my students to do for years is to challenge their assumed premises and to see how that changes many of the arguments they take for granted. So, what if money does not trickle down? What if more guns do not make us safer? And in the church, what if we are not born helpless little sinners, but are, to use the title of a book by Matthew Fox, Born an Original Blessing? Now, this is not to say that people don't sin and mess up in a multitude of ways, but it's not because we can't help ourselves. Perhaps we don't need, in fact, to have our souls saved so much as to have them restored, to remember where we came from, where we're going, and to whom we belong. The church is now awash in so-called developed doctrines, those first premises that are nowhere to be found in the Bible. Original sin says that we are born into sin, that we inherit it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. So we arrive in the world as little sinners, trapped by the transgressions of those who came before us. Because sin is a birthright, like being born red-haired or left-handed. It says that we sin because we are sinners, rather than that we are sinners because we sin. That is no small difference. Original sin renders us all helpless. Original blessing says we have a choice. And you've got to hand it to the church. The church provided all of humanity with a diagnosis for a disease for which only the church had the cure. You are depraved, we can get you saved. It even rhymes. And that, my friends, would be the ultimate spiritual franchise. What's more, if you can keep the masses from challenging your assumed premises, you have enormous power. Just take the idea of the divine right of kings. That enslaved humanity for centuries until someone got up one day and said, no, the king is not divine. The emperor has no clothes. The earth is not the center of the universe. Copernicus challenged the assumed premise of an earth-centered universe, and then Galileo made it official, and so the church put him under house arrest for being right. The doctrine of original sin as we understand it in the church is nowhere to be found in the Hebrew scriptures or in the New Testament either. Of course, we have this wonderful story in Genesis in which a mythical couple, Adam and Eve, who have everything they need but apparently not everything they want, choose to sin and then get us all kicked out of the garden. I call it a myth not because it's not true, but because it contains a truth larger than mere facts can convey. The instructions to Adam and Eve are clear enough. Do what you please, but just don't do one thing, one thing. 
Don't eat the fruit of one tree in the middle of the garden or you will die. Nonsense, says the serpent, go for it. It will open your eyes and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Besides, if one's told exactly what not to do, isn't that exactly what one begins to want to do? So the woman partakes first, of course, because the story is written by a man. She partakes and then she recommends it to Adam, the little temptress. And immediately, they realize that they are naked, i.e., they discover shame. But the best part of the story, really, is the passing of the buck. When confronted with this transgression, Adam blames the woman who blames the snake. It's the first example of the victimhood mentality, where no one is ever to blame for anything someone else is to blame. The epicenter of this sickness in our time is located in Washington, D.C., and the Bible is full of these stories that are what scholars called, call etiological. It, it's etiology. That is, they are written to explain how things got to be the way they are now by placing a story retroactively in the record so that it looks and sounds prophetic. In movie making, we call this a prequel. The rabbis looked around at the world and it was a mess. Humans were weak, selfish, dishonest, deeply flawed creatures. Well, how is this possible if we're God's creation and God is perfect? Can't be God's fault. So how do we write a story that gets God off the hook and places the blame squarely on rebellious humans? We write a story that explains it all. Once we were the perfect creation of a perfect God until we did exactly what we were told not to do, which is often what humans do. And what is the sentence handed down? Well, it is to live in the world we live in, where women give birth in great pain and sometimes die in childbirth, and where men must work by the sweat of their brow in dusty fields until they die. Or think of etiology this way. Myths serve to explain why, to use a Buddhist phrase, what is, is. Once we were perfect, frolicking blissfully in paradise, God's work was perfect, but because we chose to sin, we now suffer the consequences. We've all been kicked out of the garden. We all live, to quote Steinbeck, east of Eden. But the story does not say that we sin because we can't help ourselves. It says we often choose to sin and then suffer the consequences. This is wisdom, not doctrine, until Augustine created the doctrine of original sin because Augustine knew a thing or two about sinning, if you've studied his life, especially the sins of the flesh. He was quite the rogue until his conversion, and, and then he went on writing about the impure thoughts he still had after becoming the Bishop of Hippo. So perhaps original sin helped Augustine to deal with the decisions he had made because, you know, he just couldn't help himself. They call it original sin, which, by the way, led one stand-up comic to say, I'm all for original sin. I think if one is going to sin, one ought to be original about it. <laughs> but in fact, the doctrine of the church really makes very unoriginal sinners out of all of us. We're just doing the same old, stupid, nasty stuff all the time because we can't help ourselves. That's not very original. 
I saw a sign once in front of a church in Oklahoma, one of those wayside pulpits out on the lawn that announces the sermon title, and it said in big block letters, if you're done with sin, then come on in. But as I drew closer, I saw someone had written another message just underneath it in smaller letters, looked like lipstick, and it said, but if you're not quite through, call 272. <laughs> so, what if Matthew Fox is right? What if we are born not into original sin, but what if we are all an original blessing? Here's what I believe. Over the centuries, the church has unwittingly been part of this grand ecclesiastical put-down of the human race. We have focused so much of our energy on teaching people to be humble that we've forgotten how to embrace the idea that we're all born in the image of God, captured by the beautiful Latin phrase, imago dei. Imago dei is our original first premise, and it is in the Bible, Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't think this means that God has arms and legs and body hair. Rather, I think it means that if God is love, then we were created to love. I'll never forget the, the, the day years ago when I reported as a seventh grader to what used to be called homeroom. Do you remember homeroom? It was that first day when you'd go and the teacher would read the role, and then you'd go get your schedules and go out for your classes. And it's a very important moment because it's the first time the names of students get read aloud in their presence, and thus their identity is established. And on that particular morning, the teacher was reading names, and she read the name of a particular girl, and then she stopped and peered over her glasses and said, so is so-and-so your, your father? Yes, the girl replied. Um, and is so-and-so your brother? Yes, ma'am. You see, both the father and the brother had served prison terms on drug charges. And then the teacher said, in front of the class, well, I sure hope you're not like them. Now, how do you think that girl felt? Personally, I believe the teacher should have been arrested charged with a rhetorical crime against humanity. When we project an expectation of failure, that's usually what we get. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Have you heard that? Cute, the only problem with it is false. It's not true. Sticks and stones can indeed break our bones, but words can totally destroy us. So why do we put one another down so often? Is it because we think we'll get too high an opinion of ourselves and thus become arrogant? Well, most arrogant people I know are that way because they really don't have a very high opinion of themselves. They are insecure. Or as my friend the rabbi put it, a man who does not love himself wisely and well will make a casualty out of the neighbor sooner or later. Love those rabbinical sayings. In fact, we so distrust our own goodness, our real birthright, which is imago dei, that this word human has now been joined with a certain given weakness or fallibility. So, for example, a baseball player 
strikes out, but not because the pitcher threw the perfect curveball, but because the batter is only human. Your grandmother who bakes cakes, the three-layer jobs that come out of the oven like a, like a work of art and taste like sunshine in your mouth because, well, nobody bakes them like your grandmother, but one day something goes wrong, it happens, the cake falls, as they say, flat as the sole of your shoe. And what does your grandmother say when she fails? Well, child, I'm only human. Well, what I want to know is this. What was she when she baked the perfect cake? <clears throat> what was the baseball player when he hit the grand slam or made the diving catch? We seem to want to talk about our humanness as a way of explaining failure, but not as a way of explaining success. It's original sin over original blessing again. <clears throat> We've all heard this, to err is human, to forgive divine. See how the pie is sliced? Humans also forgive, do they not? I can tell you from personal experience that most children do not start out life all bent over from the weight of excessive and crippling humility. They do not come into the world stooped over from self-loathing. We have to sort of drill that into them. You take, for example, a nine-year-old boy who's just gotten an A in arithmetic from a really demanding teacher, and he's on his way home from school, and he's got this grade card in his hands, and he just shows it to everybody. Look at that. You see that A? That's an A, baby. She doesn't give A's to anybody. That's not a B. That's not a C. Take a look for yourself. Come on up here. Look at that. That is an A. I think I'm going to skip junior high, skip high school, <laughs> go straight to college. Now, you take that same boy 30 years later. He's a civic leader. He's community-minded. He's been the head of some project, and they call him up so he can receive recognition for his work. And what does he do in his little thank you speech? Stares at the floor, counts his shoelaces, mumbles a few words of thanks for all the forgotten people who made it possible, and his grandmother who came over on a covered wagon. I, sometimes I just wish people would get up and say, thank you, I deserve this. <laughs> In fact, this thing ought to be made of solid gold the way I worked on this project. A man named Edgar Lee Masters from Spoon River, Illinois, wrote a bunch of poems once and called them the Spoon River Anthology. And basically, they're all framed on one idea. The people in Spoon River have all died, and now that they're dead, they're telling the truth. One of them is named Constance Hadley, and this is what she said, quote, You praised my self-sacrifice, Spoon River, for rearing Irene and Mary orphans of my older sister, and you censured Irene and Mary's contempt of me. Don't praise my self-sacrifice, and don't censure their contempt of me. I cared for them, it's true enough, but I poisoned all my benefactions to them by constant reminders of their dependence on me. Do you know what she means? It sounds like this. As long as you girls set foot under my table, as long as you sleep under this roof, remember who took you in when your mother died. In other words, every kind word was accompanied by a reminder of the indebtedness of the recipient. Is it any wonder that the people we try to help so often end up hating us for it? 
When I was a boy growing up in Wichita, Kansas, I was a double PK, son of a preacher, son of a professor. This is the fate of my own children. My home church, Plymouth Congregational Church, had the annual Christmas project. We really didn't do very much benevolence the rest of the year, not like Mayflower, because, you know, the budget's tight and all that. But around Christmas time, we knew we had to show how much we cared. Inspired by Jesus, who is the reason for the season and on fire to help the needy and put Christ back in Christmas, a bunch of us from the youth group, we set out to spread love and joy, and we never thought for one minute we were being condescending about it. We made these baskets for the poor, and then we dared to go into what we used to call the ghetto in those days to distribute them, and we felt really good about it. In fact, we were proud as peacocks. First, we collected money somehow. I don't exactly remember where we got the money, probably a car wash or rummage sale or embezzled it from our parents. I don't know. We, we got the money somehow. Then we called the Department of Social Services and we asked them matter-of-factly, who are the poor in this community? And then they sent us a list of needy families. We went shopping and we, we bought fruit and candy, apples, oranges, bananas. We put them all in a sack. We put the sack in a basket, tied a bow on the top, put a little card up there with a hallmark verse about the true meaning of Christmas. But we knew how important it was to be humble because the whole Christmas story was humble, the baby Jesus, humble, the manger, nothing if not humble. So this is how we did it. First, we'd go up on the front porch with the basket and we'd knock on the door. And then when we heard the person who lived in that little shack coming, we'd yell, Merry Christmas, and we'd run and jump in the car and drive on to the next house. We didn't want to talk to anybody, just deliver the goods and then feel good about ourselves. We were making deliveries. We were not making contact, if you know what I mean. And it was my turn to make the delivery, and the neighborhood was downright depressing, and some of these places did not look fit for human habitation, but... That's why they could use some Christmas cheer, I said to myself. So I walked up onto this one porch. I knocked on the door. Nothing. No response. So I tried it again. No, nope, nobody. Nobody home, I guess. Just to be sure, I knocked a third time. I grew up in the church. You do things in threes. Nothing. Nobody's home, I thought, almost enjoying the thought. My friends, meanwhile, were growing impatient, started honking the horn. Then suddenly, his face was at the door, staring at me through the screen. It startled me. It was a black face, and I had not seen it at first in the shadows of the evening. But all of a sudden, there he was, and he said, Hi. And I said, Oh, hi. He said, What can I do for you? And I thought to myself, Uh-oh. What do I do now? I was just trying to leave a basket here, and now I'm in a conversation with a real live poor person. Then another face appeared. This one belonged to a woman, and she said, hi. And I said, hi. And then she said, won't you come in? Come in? Um, well, sure. This is not working out like I planned. Um, then they introduced themselves to me. I'm Benjamin Johnson, and this is my wife, Claire. And Claire said, and I can speak for myself, I'm Claire. 
And then I thought to myself, she's a feminist, and they, and they have names. Names. And I guess I must have been staring off into space because they responded to my silence by saying, <clears throat> and your name? Oh, who, me? Well, I'm Robin Myers from Plymouth Church, part of the youth group. Oh, yes, said Claire, the big church, beautiful church. And then out came a little boy from another part of the house, and his mother introduced him. This is our son, Timothy, she said. He looked to be maybe nine or ten, and he smiled and said, What's in the basket? I'd forgotten I was even holding this basket. And I said, Oh, here, Merry Christmas. And I handed him the basket. And he took it from me, and get this, he started getting into the basket right there, unwrapping the paper, started opening the gift right there instead of waiting till I left. He took out an apple as if he intended to eat it, whereupon he did. I'm thinking to myself, this is not working out like I planned. And then he did something really weird. He got out a second apple, and get this, he handed it to me. He gave me some of my own fruit. Now I'm thinking to myself, stupid kid, doesn't know how charity works. He's giving me back my own stuff. But what was I supposed to do? After all, we're all trying to be humble here. So I, I took it. I sat down in this house. I took a bite out of it, and I thought to myself, here I am sitting in the home of real live poor people with real names eating out of my own sack. But I'll never forget what I learned that day. I learned something as powerful as anything I've ever learned in my life, and it shapes my theology, my politics, my family life, my understanding of God. And it's very simple until you think about it. All of us, and I do mean all of us, eat out of the same basket. Not mine, not yours, his, hers, ours, there, no more. What do you people want? But what do all of us want to become? Because however we like to hide it behind slogans of the self-made man, manifest destiny and survival of the fittest, the truth is we all eat out of the same basket. We all eat together. The world is not our project, our opportunity to take from the poor and give to the rich, and then sanctify our guilt with a little charity at Christmas time. No, we're all in this together. As Lori puts it, all of us need all of us to make it. We've got to stop thinking of ourselves as if some are entitled and others are not. So the reason we should share more of the gross production tax with our teachers, raise it and share it, is that oil and gas has been given, see, a very large basket. So what do you plan to do? Eat it all by yourself? Did you make it all by yourself? The real message of Genesis isn't that we're infected with badness, but that God made the plants and trees and vegetation of every kind, and then God said, that's good. And then God made light, the greater to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night, and the stars, and God saw that it was good. Then God filled the sea with fish and the sky with birds and even great sea monsters, and, quote, God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cat, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. And again, God said, 
it's, very, it's good. God saw that it was good. But then God made something else. Slowly, out of the primal ooze of nothingness, God made a creature who could write poetry, paint masterpieces, raise Lazarus from the dead with medicine as well as faith. And after God made humans in God's own image, it is the only time that God says, not this is good, but this is very good. And what God made was you and me. And if we put ourselves down, it's a sin and not a very original one. When God made you and me and Benjamin and Claire Johnson and their son Timothy and every other human being in the world, God said, this is the very best I can do. If you're going to screw it up, that's on you. As for the Ephesians letter, it puts it this way. You are God's masterpiece. So... The next time someone does something truly extraordinary, something good and decent, grand and hopeful, just say, well, she's human. (laughs) Hey, great cake, Grandma. Best one you've ever made. Well, child, I'm human. Nice catch, Mr. Third Baseman. Well, I'm human. You see, sitting next to you right now in this sanctuary at this moment, is a creature made in the image of God. You look to your left and right, there sits the image of God. And and every time you live up to your inheritance, instead of living down to your sickness, you are recreated in the image of God. And the next time you think you can't do something, just remember, hey, I'm human. When I consider the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars, I think, what are persons that you're conscious of them? Women and men and girls and boys just like us. And the answer comes back clear as a bell from across the galaxy. This I have made in my own image only slightly less than myself. Do you believe that? I'm asking you a real question. Do you believe that? If so, then say amen. Amen. Now go out and act like it. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m., and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.